This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Nuclear weapons pose growing dangers and the world needs urgent action to ensure their elimination and prevent the catastrophic human and environmental consequences any use would cause. We look at a landmark treaty that has only just come into force and we talk to three women who were instrumental in bringing it about. All wars cause suffering, there's no question about it. But there are some weapons that are so abhorrent to humanity. I was able to go to Nagasaki. That changed me. And that gave me an internal strength that I would not have had if I had not gone and seen. You know, the first reaction people have is that, oh, yeah, those are really horrible weapons. The mushroom cloud, total devastation, end of the world kind of scenarios. There's a recognition that these are horrible and we need to do something about it, but a hopelessness, I think, in people that thinking that we can't do anything about it. The ban on nuclear weapons became law in January, 76 years after the first and only time nuclear weapons were actually used by the United States on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In the days that followed August 6, 1945, the world was initially unaware of what exactly had happened. But the International Committee of the Red Cross in Japan, in the hopes of visiting prisoners of war, sent a delegate to Hiroshima to find out. Cordor Ledruge, legal officer with the ICRC, told me more. The ICRC was present in Hiroshima in August of 1945, not immediately on, on 6th of August, but soon thereafter, and so witnessed firsthand the complete devastation of this city, and what happened is our our delegate Marcel Junot in Tokyo, and he received this telegram from his colleague Fritz Bilfinger, who was in Hiroshima, saying the city is devastated. Visited Hiroshima 30th. Situation horrifying. 80% of town razed. All hospitals destroyed or severely damaged. Have visited two provisional hospitals. Conditions indescribable. Bomb effects surprisingly severe. Many victims apparently recovering. Suddenly experience fatal relapse owing the degeneration of white corpuscles and other internal injuries. Most of the doctors have uh, died and nurses. The conditions are beyond description. And so Juno got on the plane and then brought relief into the city at that time. And then immediately thereafter called for banning these nuclear weapons, having witnessed the consequence of them in the city of Hiroshima, which he said, you know, it's flattened like the palm of a hand. Minus 10. Miles back, observers from all services and several allied nations stand by for the first... The ICRC immediately called for a ban. But instead, the big world powers settled into a race for the new weapons. Hundreds of nuclear tests of bigger and bigger bombs were carried out. 
The Nevada desert in America is the scene of the latest atomic test. People around the world were instructed on how to cope. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. We all, somehow, learn to live with the threat of global destruction. You duck, duck, and then you cover. You duck and cover. This acceptance of what was in reality a terrifyingly unacceptable situation was, says Beatrice Finn, part of the problem. She is executive director of ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, an organisation founded in 2007. Its mission to persuade the world that living with weapons of mass destruction need not be inevitable. When you talk about nuclear disarmament and, and eliminating nuclear weapons, you know, the first reaction people have is that, oh, yeah, those are really horrible weapons. And, and a lot of people have, you know, um, might not know a lot about nuclear weapons, but in comparison to other weapons, there's an awareness of the, the horror of it, uh, the mushroom cloud, total devastation, end of the world kind of scenarios. But there's also sort of that follow-up comment immediately about, but it's never going to happen. There's a recognition that these are horrible and we need to do something about it, but a hopelessness, I think, in people that thinking that we can't do anything about it. So I, I'm very often met, you know, not by actual resistance to what we're trying to do, but more this kind of general sense that it's out of our hands and we can't do anything about it. And I think that that's really where ICANN has its most potential and power is, is to kind of to inspire the people that believe in this in, in this issue and, and agree with us to actually feel like they could contribute and do something. And the campaign itself, when you started, I mean, obviously this is something you have to get member states on board. How hard was that? I mean, were there people you just thought, there's no point in even talking to them or, or how did it go? The world is quite different. And it's, it's quite interesting now to think about just yeah, 10 years back in, back in time, Obama and Medvedev had signed the New START Treaty. There was this sense of optimism, in a way, in 2011, 2012, like, you know, we were going somewhere better. Uh, it didn't start this treaty as a reaction to everything bad that was happening. Rather that there was an opportunity here, and maybe this is a moment where we could really push for something. And I think that one of the, the, the challenges we faced early was more well, things are fine now. Why, why would we need to care about this issue? Is this really a problem? Um, whereas fast forward, you know, throughout these Trump and Putin years, people have been more, oh my God, they might press the button soon. Uh, it, it's really quite urgent. So it was definitely a, a work in a collaboration early on with governments. Uh, and so some of them were easy to convince. Uh, some of them were quite difficult. It took a long time before it became... Um, an issue that uh, the governments were, were comfortable talking about in public. I think a lot of uh, governments weren't comfortable comfortable saying right out loud, right? We're going to ban nuclear weapons, and we're going to do it with or without the nuclear arms states on board. And this is this is the new thing that we're doing. So that took several years to get governments brave enough to express it publicly. But once they started doing that, we sort of had this cascade of support for the ICRC. ICANN's emergence was good news. Finally, an official campaign for a United Nations treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. The ICRC works in war zones, 
It is pragmatic about the fact that wars will happen, and it certainly does not call for a ban on all weapons. But this one, says Cordula Droga, really should not exist. There are ethical reasons, moral reasons, humanitarian reasons and legal reasons. The immense suffering caused by those weapons. Now, all wars cause suffering, there's no question about it. But there are some weapons that are so abhorrent to humanity and and the principles of public conscience that the ICRC has called for their ban on the basis of the suffering that they cause. And the ICRC, of course, is also the guardian of international humanitarian law. And all weapons, including nuclear weapons, in armed conflict have to abide by the principles of distinction, which is to distinguish between combatants and civilians and military objects and civilian objects, the principle of proportionality, which um, requires that there shouldn't be excessive civilian harm in armed conflict. Now, nuclear weapons in particular fall short of all of those principles because a nuclear weapons detonation will cause immediate effects that are so widespread, so strong, that they will cause indiscriminate death and injury amongst uh, military and civilians. When you read, for instance, the description about the weapon in Hiroshima, it, you know, you have the blast that was about two kilometers wide, which flattened everything around it. And then for miles and miles beyond the city was destroyed. Now, nuclear weapons that we have today have partly 10 times more power than the weapon like in Hiroshima. So they will flatten entire cities. They will pollute the land, the soil, the water, which all will have consequences on the suffering of not only the military, but also civilians. And again, they cannot be contained in time. And this is also important. The Japanese Red Cross in its hospitals still today, 75 years later, treats people who are suffering illness or cancer from the effects of the Hiroshima bombings and Nagasaki bombings. Was it a war crime, dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima? That's a good question, you know, and it's very difficult to to assess this with hindsight. I mean, it wasn't considered a war crime at that time. Today, if you deliberately commit uh, uh, an indiscriminate targeting, then it would amount to a war crime in, in an international armed conflict. So, so I think today there's a great chance that the use of, of a nuclear weapon, which would be um, deliberately indiscriminate, would uh, constitute a war crime. The next step in the campaign was to find a diplomat to steer the treaty negotiations through the United Nations. I am Elaine White. I am a diplomat from Costa Rica. I had the great honour and privilege to negotiate the treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons. Elaine White Gomez was Costa Rica's ambassador to the UN in Geneva. Her country abolished its armed forces in 1948. Ever since, promoting peace and disarmament has been a key pillar of Costa Rica's foreign policy. Guiding the nuclear ban treaty through the UN was, she remembers, a natural fit. We were approached to ask if Costa Rica was willing to take up this role. 
And then I think there were two considerations. First of all, of course, we, we had to analyze all of the uh, circumstances. It was a challenging, very challenging endeavor. It is the first time in the UN history that a process, formal process of the UN unfolds with the direct opposition of the P5. But I tell you that, of course, we went through everything and all the considerations. And one, we understood that we could not shy away from that responsibility because it was something that we would have failed the Costa Rican society if we would not have taken on board that responsibility. Were you personally daunted at all, thinking, I'm going to take this on? Um, no. On the personal level, your persona knows that, you know, you're going to go through a very important challenge in your life. But I felt very, very secure because I have the complete back of my government. So I, I felt very grounded. But there was something that did change the process in me. It is that I was able to go to Nagasaki. I had been in Japan before, but I had never been in Hiroshima or in Nagasaki. And I have to tell you, that changed me. And that gave me an internal strength that I would not have had if I had not gone and seen and experienced with my human part of this diplomatic operator. The campaign began to gather strength. In 2017, ICANN received the world's top award for peace. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017 to the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN. There to accept the award was Setsuku Thurlow, one of the last remaining survivors of Hiroshima. I was just 13 years old girl when the United States dropped the first atomic bomb on my city of Hiroshima. I remember that morning vividly. At 8.15, I saw a blinding bluish-white flush. Her description at the Nobel ceremony of that day in 1945 was watched by millions. I saw all around me utter unrecognisable, unimaginable devastation. Procession of ghostly figures shuffled by. Grotesquely wounded people they were bleeding, burned, blackened, and swollen. Parts of their bodies were missing. Flesh and skin hung from their bones. For Cordula Droga, this was an important moment to remind the world of the horrific effects of nuclear weapons. Because in 2017, the policy of mutually assured destruction and that fragile consensus that no one should strike first had begun to erode. 
it was a dangerous moment. You know, you have voices saying, oh, you know, maybe we can use tactical nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, the first strike, so the, the taboo against the use of, of a nuclear weapon, as the first strike was being put into question, you have an upgrading and modernization of uh, nuclear weapons arsenals instead of disarmament. And so while in the disarmament and non-proliferation obligations, you have an obligation to work towards an elimination of nuclear weapons. This isn't happening at the moment. You have 13,000 nuclear weapons, many of which have higher yields than the bombs in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And many of those are on high alert status, so they can be triggered really at, you know, in, in, in a matter of seconds. So this is all very worrying. And if this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons can strengthen the taboo and again trigger a motivation of nuclear weapon states, but also the states that have agreements with the nuclear weapon states and are under the so-called nuclear umbrella to double their efforts, to make more efforts for disarmament and non-proliferation and the gradual elimination of nuclear weapons, that is already a success. I now declare the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons open for signature. At the United Nations, Elaine White Gomez's diplomacy was paying off. In July 2017, the draft treaty was presented for member states' adoption. The most important moment, of course, was um, the adoption itself of the treaty. There was um, such energy in that room. But for me, also, you know how the screen, the, the screen that shows the voting, I did not have it in front of me. It was a little bit on my side. So when I turned around and I looked at the 122, in that moment, I burst in, in, in emotion because that is a very strong mandate. 122 of the UN's 193 members approved the draft treaty. Next step, signing it. After that, ratification. Well, the world is one step closer to banning nuclear arms. Honduras has just become the 50th country to ratify the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. That means that the treaty will now come into force in 90 days. With 50 states ratifying it, the treaty abolishing nuclear weapons, their use, their production, their stockpiling came into force in January of this year. But there's an elephant in the room. Not a single nuclear power has ratified it, and so the treaty doesn't apply to them. ICANN's Beatrice Finn explains. Of course, the treaty is not solving these issues already. And as all international law, you know, it's not quick fixes, and it doesn't work instantaneously. And that's one of the challenges for international law and multilateralism in general, I think, that Media works very fast, people are very sort of short attention spans these days, and they want to see results immediately. And that's not how international law works. It works over time. You can see it over decades. You can see how incredibly powerful the shifts of behavior can be in many cases. And so really what we're hoping is that this, this treaty will start changing things for the long term in the way that the Bioweapons Convention, the ban on chemical weapons, have really shifted how we think about those weapons. Some people might ask, though, with this treaty, which 
I would imagine 99.9% of your ordinary citizens on this planet would say, great, but it's a treaty which applies to the signatories. Nuclear weapons are outlawed for people who have signed this treaty, but the states who have nuclear weapons haven't signed it. So people will say, well, isn't that a bit illogical? And what can it actually achieve if nuclear weapons are only illegal for states who don't have them? Mm. That, that reaction is very, very common and something that we hear all the time. But I think that when people start thinking about it in detail, how these things work, the fact that the international law, even if it doesn't apply to all countries, now has this line in the sand that these weapons are, are illegal. It's a huge thing. And it, it really is going to kind of shift the burden onto those that are outside the norm. And we've seen that with human rights treaties, for example, we've seen that with the Chemical Weapons Convention. I mean, Syria, Assad used chemical weapons in Syria. Nobody said that that was okay just because they hadn't joined the treaty, right? They were banned under international law. This is a bad weapon. And in people's minds and the sort of norms in society say that chemical weapons is a bad thing. So of course, you can't force countries to do something. And I think that's the whole idea behind the international law is to create the incentives to behave in a certain way. Like the US, Russia, China, they didn't sign the landmines ban, they didn't sign the cluster munitions ban. But the way these weapons have been drastically reduced, stockpiles have been eliminated, the use of them have almost stopped. And, and you can see how, how even countries that haven't signed the treaties are shifting their behavior. The US is almost following the landmines ban, uh, even if they haven't formally signed it. And uh, there are no more American producers of cluster munitions because the companies in the United States that make these weapons, and they are not too concerned about humanitarian issues, right? They're weapons companies. But even they said, it's not a, a sustainable business idea anymore because it's banned on international law. So the idea behind the treaty really is to kind of turn up the pressure on the nuclear armed states and make it more difficult to maintain and continue to have nuclear weapons. They will disarm when it's in their interest to do so. So basically what we're trying to do is to create more incentives and make it harder to maintain them, right? Make it complicated, difficult. They have to defend it at every UN body. They have to be sort of feel like it's a constant burden to have it. Um, and thereby created, you know, an, an easier setting for the U.S. Congress to say, why are we spending gazillions of dollars on this weapon when we're in a pandemic? And the rest of the world has banned them and they get really annoyed with us. And the U.K. can do similar things and France and China and Russia will do similar things. And we've seen it in the past that it actually works. Elaine White Gomez agrees. We may not see results overnight, but this treaty will, bit by bit, change perceptions of what is acceptable. History, she points out, has precedence for this. The big question is, how long does it take for a treaty to render the first results? What is the time frame that you can expect uh, a treaty to actually see the first results? In this case, the first contribution of the treaty is its normative force. First time in history, you uh, you have this vehicle in which uh, you articulate that nuclear weapons are illegal and illegitimate. So this normative force is going to go deeply into, into societies and in the interaction of states, the discussions of states. And uh, 
when I uh, address this issue of the time frame or the impact of the treaty, I like to, to, to bring historic examples that the international community has gone through in dealing with some scourges. For instance, slavery was uh, considered legitimate for centuries. How many norms and how many actions were needed to be taken so that there was a point in history in which we no longer considered, or the international community no longer considered that slavery was legitimate because it was illegal, because it was Ill illegitimate, but also because societies change. I realize the tragic significance of the atomic bomb. Having found the atomic bomb, we have used it. For the ICRC, which campaigned from the start for a ban, the treaty is a real cause for celebration. Cordula Droga again. Very much, very pleased, and, and we are really celebrating, and we're celebrating this as a historical moment, actually. We, even 10, 15 years ago, the idea that you could have this treaty was, you know, very unlikely. You also have to celebrate it as a victory, particularly for the Hibakusha, the victims of, of these nuclear bombings who campaigned for this for 75 years and, and, and very few of them, but some of them can still see this, this victory and, and are celebrating it. You know, that doesn't mean it's now the end of nuclear weapons. I think we can't be naive about this, but it sets a milestone where we have a benchmark which all states have to acknowledge. Last time we talked about treaties on Inside Geneva, we looked at the Ottawa Convention on Landmines, a treaty that has, in the 22 years since it came into force, truly changed our world and saved countless lives. The nuclear ban has only just come into force. And, like the Ottawa Convention, the big powers haven't ratified it. But if history is anything to go by, we have reason to hope that the coming years will see, at last, a real move away from nuclear weapons and the nightmare scenario of our own destruction. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Cordula Droga of the ICRC, Beatrice Finn of ICANN, and Ambassador Elaine White-Gomez. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, and of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, 
satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Thank you.